Take nothing on its legs. Take everything on evidence. There is no better rule, writes Charles Dickens in his novel The Great Expectations. When speaking about evidence, the hundreds of graphs and reports about the current state of housing and well-being are crystal clear. Prices and incomes rarely march shoulder to shoulder. But is housing legislation always based on facts? Positive examples of housing affordability do exist, and yet serious improvements in this direction are more than necessary. Welcome to Making a House a Home, the podcast of Housing Europe, the European Federation of Public, Cooperative and Social Housing Providers. You're listening to the eighth episode of the Housing 2030 initiative led by UNICE, UN Habitat and Housing Europe. This is also the second podcast in which we are speaking about governance. I'm Diana Yordanova and I have the pleasure to welcome our guest today the director of the UK Collaborative Centre for Housing Evidence, Ken Gibb. Since 2017, the centre has been making the link between academia, housing policy and practice. And now, it is time to travel virtually to the UK and kick off the conversation. Can housing researchers like you and your colleagues spent a lot of time trying to understand the issues with our current systems. Despite this, if we take the UK as an example, many challenges remain, such as lack of supply in many urban areas, unaffordable rents and house prices, and even more alarming issues like overcrowding and homelessness. Does the persistence of these problems reflect a simple lack of understanding by housing experts? or? Are there more worrying issues like a failure by governments to take on board available evidence when they legislate for issues related to governance and regulation of the housing sector? I think, as with many of these kinds of questions, it's several things going on at the same time. A couple of structural issues. I think one is that we have far too much ministerial turnover in uh, the uh, ministries, particularly in England. There's been 19 housing ministers since 2000. There's been 10 in the last decade. So you have this situation where, where there's like a revolving door of ministers coming and going. They want to have their own initiative. Don't see it through, they move on to something else. My colleague, Christine Whitehead, has talked about the problem of initiativitis in Britain, where too many new ideas come through. They get headlines. They are maybe piloted or they've just begun, but by the time they're actually hitting, making traction, there's a new minister in place and they get sidestepped for some for something else. There's a problem there. There's also a problem, I think, what economists call time inconsistency. Built environment and housing policies should take a long time to build up momentum. They should take time to change. But our electoral cycle is relatively short. We have these ministerial turnover problems. So there's a kind of disjuncture between the necessity to monitor and evaluate policies and just this constant need to do new things. So that's a problem as well. I would also say, however, there are lots of good things going on in Britain. We've got interesting policy to seek to statutorily prevent homelessness in England and in Wales, private renting reforms in Scotland, and the affordable supply programme in Scotland, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk, talk about. 
So it's not all bad, but I would still say that one of the great weaknesses in Britain is there are still ideological overtones in a lot of policy. So there's a kind of mythologising about home ownership and about a need to have a ranking in housing tenures, housing outcomes, rather than to focus on system benefits like stable house prices, like incrementally progressive housing policies and meeting housing needs. I've always been impressed by the idea of multi-party commissions on the key components of long-term policy, such as in in housing. And I'm sure they couldn't agree on all of the items, but we really need multi-parliamentary consistency of policy. That's historically been very difficult in Britain, but we do have, we have had some success. In Scotland, back in the last two decades ago, so we managed to deliver a really powerful homelessness legislation, greatly expanding the rights of homeless people, and it implemented it over a, an eight-year period. It can be done, and there were two different parties in government. So there was a big tent, there was consensus, and people stuck to the policy and made it work. It can be done, but it's just, it's just hard. In a recent study for Housing Europe's member, the Scottish Federation of Housing Associations, SFHA, you say that, I'm quoting, investment in the social housing sector generates economic and social benefits for Scotland and its people, including reducing poverty and homelessness, improving health and creating jobs. I'm sure that our listeners would be curious to know more about how you came to these conclusions. And a bonus question, if I may, how do policymakers react to these types of studies and what role do they play in policymaking? Well, this was a a really interesting study that we did in partnership with an organisation called HACT. And HACT, uh, Housing Association Charitable Trust, who work in social impact in particular. And the project was an evidence review of the economic social health benefits of housing investment. We carried out four in-depth case studies of different kinds of housing associations in Scotland, and we looked at how they evidenced and used impact in their work. We also sense-checked the work with the stakeholders who support the programme. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence that social housing investment generates economic benefits through the labour market, through multiplier effects, added value in that sense. Also, that it's largely additional. So it does actually contribute to the economy more than what the market would have done. There's a lot of literature, meta-evidence reviews about health and housing and such like, which tell similar stories, but with some caveats. I wouldn't say it's a one-way street. It's quite complex. We were able to use the hacked methodology, which monetizes the well-being impacts of investment activities, of interventions. And we connected that directly to the Scottish Government's National Performance Framework, which is its ambitions for all public policy in Scotland. So we could say, if you're a housing association and you invest in this form of intervention, you can calculate what you expect the scale of the benefits to be in monetary terms. You can then, when you put your bid in for public funding, that's your argument you can use. That links directly to what the government itself says are its ambitions. And they include things like the UN development goals and things of that kind, as well as ambitions about well-being, about the economy, about fairness, about human rights. You can make the direct mapping across. But in addition to that, if you get funded, the housing provider is then accountable to demonstrate through evaluation that they've actually done these things and they've achieved them. And also the government can say, we're investing X million pounds in the housing association sector, they're doing these wider things to do with anti-poverty, to do with jobs, as well as housing investment. And 
we are meeting our national goals by, by so doing. So it closes a circle. And I think by making the provider accountable as well, I think it's a really valuable way of, of impact. While it's early days to say what impact that's had politically, I've been really struck that the sector, the housing sector, is very interested in this kind of approach. I think they can see that there's a pragmatic necessity to demonstrate impact. This monetization, which sounds rather commercialized and, and pounds and pence kind of thing, is actually completely consistent with the way the UK government does cost benefit analysis and appraisal. And they would include, if these monetized measures are robust, and they are robust, they would include them as well. So it's actually doing all the things government would want, I think, of providers. And it's providing a lot of information, which you're then accountable to demonstrate in reality that you can do. I spoke probably more to civil servants and policy advisors than politicians about it, but I think they would recognise that this is a tool which is useful from a value for money point of view. Also a way of actually making real these kind of well-being and impact things, which are very much the currency of, of the moment, I think. I mean, everyone's talking about these things, and we're making a pretty strong application of those ideas. If you can convince people that these things are robust, I think it's something that everybody wants to be. If you apply for funds from government for housing investment, you do have to say in your application what the impact will be. And now we've essentially, with Hacked in the Leeds, provided a kind of toolbox, a dashboard where associations can say, these are things we're trying to do. This is the value to the individual. These number of individuals will be benefited in any given year. And you can start to put together a really interesting narrative about it. The UK Collaborative Centre for Housing Evidence has launched a major research project to provide an understanding of the housing policy changes that have taken place in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Undoubtedly, many researchers around the globe will be looking for such answers. Can you disclose some preliminary findings? Let me tell you about what we're doing, and I'll talk about one project in particular. We originally had a discussion with Hal Pawson at the University of New South Wales who was doing a kind of similar study in Australia. And we realised if we kind of joined forces, we could do a UK-Australian thing. So we, in discussing with the kind of network of people who are in the Collaborative Centre, we ended up with about 10 potential projects. And they range from policy interventions under lockdown, taking rough sleeping homeless people off the streets, about the suspension of evictions, about income supplements and reduced housing costs to help people with their housing costs, living costs as well as issues about design value and planning issues that arise from people being locked down, as well as issues about domestic abuse and about housing market interventions to try to grow and stabilise the housing market and help economic recovery. And what's interesting about this work is that it's all bottom-up. There's no external funding for this. This is just from our own resources. It's all about kind of policymaking under crisis and then what happens to those policies as we thought we would unlock the crisis. But of course, we'd, you know, the crisis has carried on. We have the second and a third lockdown in Britain. We've also, Hal Pawson in Australia and I, we're also going to do an international comparative study as well involving six nations, three in Europe, three elsewhere. This work will go on for about 15 months. We're beginning to publish some of our first reports. Uh, there's a lot of them still in the system, still about to come out. The work that I'm doing on it is about the economic supports to meet, help people's housing costs and also this idea about state intervention to prop up and support the housing market as it comes through the, the lockdown. And I think also to try to, from the government's point of view, mitigate the impacts on the economy as the economy turns down. Two broad findings, I think, that are of interest, which, are, which resonate and I know resonate in other parts of the world too. 
One is that what the government did was they, for a temporary period, reduced stamp duty and transactions taxes, and the Scottish government, who have their own transaction tax, did, did the same. And that has been accompanied by a really rapid recovery in the housing market in Britain. So prices have risen, there's been pent-up demand, and the market has been charging along. And it looks very strongly like this is in part driven by the tax position. The tax changes will revert to the status quo in April, beginning of April, and it looks like the market is going to turn down sharply at that point. In a sense, what the intervention has done is it's encouraged people into the market and then it's encouraged them to finish, complete their sales before the cutoff point, and then the market's going to dip. One way of looking at that is to say, well, at least there's been all that activity and that's kind of good for the economy, but there's going to be a, a downside to it. There's going to be a, we're expecting a contraction in the market thereafter. The other thing, which originally was anecdote, but I think there's more and more evidence, and I've, I've been in meetings where there's people in Australia, in the United States, in Spain and other places all saying making the same point is this idea that the experience of lockdown of spending a lot of time in your home has made more and more people who can move realize that the property is unsuitable for them in the sense that the internal layout makes working at home difficult etc the lack of green space means the in high density urban living etc is unsatisfactory so there's mounting evidence now of both relative changes in rents and prices between city centres and more suburban locations, much increased search activity in, in suburban and semi-rural locations, but also a really strong gradient in terms of people with higher incomes, more capacity to move who have been the ones who do that. So there's a kind of structural inequality underlying it to some extent. And we're just trying to gather information and evidence for that. So some of it's anecdotal, some of it's more qualitative, but there is some leading indicators from the housing market and estate agents and such like, which would back that up. The big question becomes, is this, is this a permanent change? Is that a transitory change? Will it, will it fade away over time? I think it raises all sorts of interesting questions about the future of town centres. We are going to have a huge initiative in Britain, as I'm sure it's true elsewhere, uh, about retrofitting the existing housing stock. And that's seen as a huge way of creating jobs, creating a new, new industry. There's a lot of public money going into it, as well as trying to create incentives for it. How is that going to be impacted if people's locational preferences are changing and they're looking for more green space and better internal design, etc.? Really interesting, I think. As a next question, if we look at Scotland's national housing strategy, would you say that it is successful? And if yes, what do you think were the main ingredients? Yeah, I think there's two kind of things. One is the affordable supply program, which is now in its it is in the tenth year of, of two five year blocks. And there's also a longer term policy. So I'll talk about the affordable supply strategy first. This emerged in twenty eleven when the government had a majority and had, had the ability to take on a lot of policies without without the same constraints that we'd have had in a co coalition, I suppose. They chose to develop a five-year programme. This was in a context of austerity, and uh, it, was, it wasn't a modest programme, but it wasn't a huge programme either. It was to build 30,000 social and affordable units over the five years of the Parliament, 6,000 a year, two-thirds of which would be social housing, general needs social housing, and they delivered that. Uh, so that was a mixture of housing associations and councils, because in Scotland, councils build council housing. They no longer have the right to buy for housing in Scotland. Housing association councils and a lot of affordable home ownership as well. Simple as that, achieved its target. It made a significant difference in the psychology of social housing, I think. 
And it was also an important time because the private sector development industry was struggling in the wake of the recession. This was a counter-cyclical positive thing to do. 2016, following a national affordable needs study and a general election, the same party remained in power, but now it's a minority government. And they upped their game to 50,000 units rather than 30. And they delivered more social housing, 70% of it was social housing. Up until last year, they were on target to reach the 50,000, but obviously COVID happened and that caused some delays. And now they're going to try and really use the first year of the next parliamentary term to get through that, that programme. I think there were some doubts about whether there would be another programme, actually, and, and certainly some of the mood music suggested that the government had, was moving into other priorities, including existing housing stock, including climate and child poverty and things of that kind. And we're trying to reconfigure what housing policy was about. The advent of both a new housing needs study and I think also COVID, and again, the counter-cyclical argument, has led them back to seeing that, yes, there will be another programme of a broadly equivalent size. It's been successful, I think, in the sense that Scotland has, for I think nine out of the last 10 years, built more affordable housing per head of population than England, which is quite a remarkable thing, I think. It's been successful in that there's an industry and a machine and government. People know their tasks and their roles to make this happen. There have been times when not all of the money was spent as it was originally meant to be spent. So one local authority or area may not have had the wherewithal in a given year to deliver. And what the government would do is then reallocate it somewhere else where there was a need. I've been on a board of a housing association and we've benefited from that before when money came towards the end of financial year, which we were able to then respond to and brought part of our forward plan forwards, as it were. And so we, we, we were able to use it. So I think generally speaking, that system worked pretty well. And I think the fact that it's delivered, because of the end to the right to buy, the actual stock of social housing in Scotland has gone up, which is incredible. That's the first time since the early 1980s. I think it's actually gone up because the right to buy was always eroding it and 10-year change was eroding it. But actually, we've now got more social, slightly more social housing than we, than we had at the beginning of this period. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about the long-term policy agenda. Big consultation process has been underway for three years, again, hampered by uh, COVID, but this is called Housing to 2040, and it's trying to set in chain a series of a policy agenda for the next 19 years now, which really aligns housing policy to the government's wider policy objectives like inclusive growth, well-being, the economy, human rights, the climate change agenda. It set out about a year and a half ago a programme called its Vision and Principles, and it included some really radical things, not so much about social housing, but actually about the private sector. It's made an ambition of the policy to stabilise house prices, an ambition to reduce the reliance of households on housing wealth as a way of storing wealth. And it's suggested to private landlords that they shouldn't expect to make capital gains. They should expect to make income returns from their investment. So that's a corollary of stable house prices, obviously. That's an amazing statement if you think about it. I struggle to think of people making that kind of claim as a claim for what policy is supposed to do. And I say that because I think the challenge is, it's a great aspiration. Like, you know, I'm very comfortable with that as a, an end point. It's how you deliver it. It's such a challenge to imagine how you would actually deliver that. One thinks of tax interventions and things like that to try to stabilise prices, but there's much more to it than that. I mean, one thing that seems to me is important is we need to find alternative places for savings and investments to go, which isn't the second-hand housing market. And one of the things that economists talk about in the UK is to reintroduce public sector-led 
national savings schemes which offer real real rates of return. So they subsidise rates of return to try to shift people, British homeowners, from saving and investing in their housing, saving and investing in more productive things. It's a fascinating long-term agenda they've got, and I think they are serious about it. It's not just a long-term agenda that we just put out there. I think they are serious about it. We are nearing the end of our conversation. But before that, I'm curious to ask you, in your view, is housing affordability a result of good governance structures? Or put differently, does good governance guarantee that we'll have sufficient availability of affordable housing? I think that good governance is a necessary condition for good housing policy full stop. But it's not a sufficient condition to deliver affordability. I think there are always exogenous shocks that can hit the system. In Britain, we've had Brexit as well as COVID to concern ourselves with. But if you have a system which has good leadership, has clear aims, has delivery paths, which makes sense, all of those things are really important. It also has to have good monitoring and evaluation, I think. All of those things need to be in place. In Britain, one of our problems in Scotland, I guess, is that housing's devolved. So, but it's only partly devolved. It's not completely devolved. The sort of public finance relationship between London and Edinburgh is kind of Byzantine in its complexity at times. The one key thing I think about governance, which is often overlooked, is the not very exciting but really important question of enforcement of the governance regulatory principles. So, in Britain, for more than 10 years, we've had a gradual diluting and thinning of the capacity of local government in particular to enforce the planning system, to enforce private rented sector regulation in particular. There's simply less bodies doing that really important work and there's less resource to support them. And it's one of those kind of unseen kind of crimes that's gone on for a long, long time. And it's really, really significant. We have huge issues in the private rented sector in terms of treatment of tenants, the quality of housing, the legality of relationships, etc as well as knowing that good regulation, which is enforced and credible, can actually greatly improve the quality of the sector. And it's hamstrung by this long-term public spending reduction and kind of, you know, reduction in the, in the kind of professional people we need to do those tasks. And without it, it's really hard to make it work. It's not so much about affordability as it's about just making the housing system and housing policy effective. If you can't enforce it on the grounds, It doesn't matter how good our aspirations are at the centre. Thank you very much for this conversation, Ken. Much appreciated. Thank you. Okay, thank you. This was another podcast about housing governance and the power of political decisions to impact the places where we live. The good news is that the discussion will continue beyond these platforms, beyond Anchor, Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts. You can still join the Housing 2030 Digital Conference titled Good Governance and Regulation to Support Affordability in Housing on 24th of February. The registration is open on housingeurope.eu and housing2030.org. I really look forward to seeing you there. Until then, take care and talk to you soon.